0: Well, you guys haven't often seen me at a uh, loss for words, have you? Um, Honestly, there's no place I'd rather be on my birthday than spending time with you guys looking at the Lord's Word. I couldn't think of anything more enjoyable and more fruitful. And it is such a blessing to be one of your elders. Um, Every week, I get to see God powerfully working in you and in the midst of your selfless service whether it be those of you who serve as leaders or volunteers in this church, those of you who serve as foster parents, those of you who serve through uh, groups like Young Life or Camp Agape, I get to watch you lay down your life to serve the God that laid down his life for you. And it's honestly one of the biggest honors, if not the biggest honor of my life, to serve you as your elder. And these moments bring an absolute smile to my lips and a joy to my heart that reminds me that God is good. And when his people act in a way that is truly bearing his image, we have a powerful witness to one another and to the world around us that God is indeed good. And as we've progressed through Deuteronomy, it's very easy to get lost or sidetracked and to forget that the idea of selfless love is at the core of what God was speaking to his people through Moses. God covenanted with this people, redeemed them, provided for them, and brought them to this moment in time where we're reading in Deuteronomy 25. And he brought them to this geographic place to install them into the land of Canaan to be a reflection of his character, to show his good nature. At the heart of all these laws that we've been going through and the speeches that Moses gives is the fact that God was asking his people to be selfless as a contrast to the selfishness of the rest of mankind. When you boil down the the action of a Christian, it really comes down to that, selflessness in contrast to the selfishness of the world. And this morning's text is no different. And what we'll be able to do is take a look at this text and its intent and uh, and, and use it as a background to a very stark comparison of two stories in the Old Testament that show quite vividly the contrast between the innate selfishness of mankind which completely masks the image of God, and the selflessness of God's people, which amplifies and proclaims the goodness of God's character. Now, I was gonna joke a little bit about how I was gonna punish you for the birthday song with reading more from Deuteronomy about uh, various laws, and you'll see what I mean by that as soon as we read them. We're gonna cover the law today about what happens when two men are in a fight and one of the wives grabs the other man's genitals, right? That's a good way to punish you for the birthday song, right? (laughs) But the Word of God is not punishment, is it? The Word of God is edifying and it's useful. And so, even before I knew you were going to do a birthday song, because I didn't know until I came up here on stage, uh, I wanted to show you today how good God is. And even through this odd section of laws, God is trying to show us what we've seen many times throughout Deuteronomy, but it bears repeating. He's trying to create a holy people. And specifically in this text, we're going to see that he's trying to get us to be a selfless people reflecting a selfless God. A selfless people reflecting a selfless God. If you think, Hans, we've had a number of these titles now where it's this kind of people reflecting this kind of God, then you understand now Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 25, starting in verse 5. "'If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger.' Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her, and the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of israel and if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate of the elders and say, "My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. he will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him, and if he persists saying, I do not wish to take her." That his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man. I can't even get through it without laughing. So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. So watch it, or we might call you that. <laughs> Sticks and stones may break my bones. Verse 11. When men fight with one another and the wife of one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of him who is beating him and puts out her hand and seizes him by the private parts, then you shall cut off her hand. Your eyes shall have no pity. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> right? I mean, seriously, can we all laugh just a little bit to ease the tension here? This is the kind of text that I really hope that my non-believing friends won't bring up to me when I'm about to tell them about Jesus because it's hard, right? Right? But what's amazing about this text, as you'll see today, is all we've got to do is dig a little bit. We've got to follow the hyperlinks that the author gives us, and we'll immediately see why this is in God's Word. To understand where these two seemingly odd laws are coming from, we need to be reminded of a bit of background that we've already seen in Deuteronomy. And so the first thing you can write down today is this. The background of what's called leveret marriage, and we'll, I'll tell you why it's called that, Levirate marriage, is the link between inheritance and covenant. So the background of levirate marriage is the link between inheritance and covenant. About a month ago, in Deuteronomy 22, we looked at this idea in great detail in the context of the sexual ethic of God's people. You can go back and listen to that. I would encourage you to do so, to be reminded of the reasoning behind the connection between possession of the land and covenant. But this morning, we're going to simply observe how closely the two are connected, just as a reminder. So let's look back. Uh, at Genesis, the story all the way at the beginning of the Bible. Go back to Genesis with me to Genesis 3. And I want to look at God's first people here, Adam and Eve, to see the connection of land and covenant. Genesis 3, starting in verse 22 there, is where we're going to be. And you guys know the story. God created mankind and placed them in the midst of the land of Eden to be fruitful and multiply, to tend the earth, to subdue it, to protect it. You can see that in chapter 2. Chapter 1 is preparation of the land. Chapter 2 is the call for them to protect it. The word in Hebrew is shamar. It's to protect the land. And it has a sense of warfare with it. And they were supposed to be fruitful and multiply so they could fill the earth and they could subdue it in the name of their creator God. But you know what happened. Unfortunately, an adversary pictured as a serpent shows up and convinces Adam and Eve to doubt the goodness of God which is constantly our battle, is it not? Doubting the goodness of God, that he has our best interest in mind, that he wants reconciliation. And so they decide to, to um, build up on their own and decide on their own what is good and evil in their own eyes. And this rebellion against God led to division in the relationship between God and man. And so when they sin by doing the very thing that God asked them not to, they start to believe and understand the difference between good and evil is really just separation from God or unity with God. And so God has to remove them though because now they've separated themselves from him and they're in a state of, of, of death, of death that's begun. And so he, they can't stay in the garden and have access to the tree of life. And so he removes them from the garden and we see there in Genesis 3.22, it says this, "'Then the Lord God said, "'Behold, the man has become like one of us "'in knowing good and evil. "'Now lest he reach out his hand "'and take also the tree of life "'and eat and live forever. "'Therefore the Lord God sent him "'out of the garden of Eden "'to work the ground from which he was taken.'" He drove out the man, and, the, and at the east of the garden, so we know that he drove them out to the east, at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So in other words, he sent out to the east. And it was out uh, to this, um, this area of land that they had to go. They're sent out... of the land that God had prepared for them, and where they eventually land and where mankind comes to rest in its sinful fullness is in Genesis chapter 11 in the Tower of Babel. You guys remember that story? Where they build up the name for themselves as opposed to God, and they're in this place called Babel, or what we come to know in the Bible as the land of Babylon. It was from that land of Babylon that a man named Abraham started to be called out. And it was with Abraham that God confirms a covenant relationship so that eventually all nations will once again have a way back to relationship with their creator. But look at the confirmation of this covenant and what it's all about. Turn a little bit to the right to Genesis 15. And look at Genesis 15, verses 18 through 21, right at the end of this story about how God reconfirms the covenant. In Genesis 15, 18, it says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is the land of Canaan. This is the land that by Jewish tradition was the Garden of Eden, that Adam and Eve had to leave to go to the east, and God is now calling his people back to create this place where his people reign in righteousness and justice, and God's relationship with man is restored. And this promise of the land was then reconfirmed with each of Abram's sons. Uh, Take a look at Genesis 26. Go to the right a little bit. You're already in the book, so it should be easy. Go to Genesis 26. And this is Abraham's son, Isaac, take a look at verse two there. And the Lord appeared to him and said, "Do not go down to Egypt, dwell in the land which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and will bless you, for to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. right? And he goes on from there, I will multiply your offspring uh, to uh, sorry, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge and my commandments, my statutes and my laws. And then he gives them the land, right? The covenant and the land are 100% connected. You can't have the covenant without the land and you can't have the land without the covenant. Well, then just look a little bit to the right again to Genesis 28. And then we see Isaac's son, Jacob. Isaac's son, Jacob in twenty-eight thirteen. Wow, I must be getting older. I got to get closer to my Bible here. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and the south. And in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. See how the covenant and the land are inextricably linked? You can't have relationship as an Israelite without the land. To have the land is to be in covenant with God. At the core of the covenant with Israel is the fact that God had prepared and promised the land of Israel to his people, and the people were to go in, conquer and inhabit the land in his name through their offspring. And so here they are in the book of Deuteronomy, poised on the east side of the Jordan River, having begun with the call of their forefather Abraham... It started in the place of Babylon all the way to the land of the east. And he's now been called out of Babylon. He was in the land of Ur. He and his father Terah um, went to the land of Haran. And then from Haran, God called Abram. And he's now he went down into Israel. But remember, they went to Egypt and now came back. And now he and the rest of the Israelites are on the east side of the Jordan River about to go into the land. And they've been called to subdue this land in the name of the God that called Abram. The land and the covenant. The inheritance of the offspring and the relationship with God, they're totally linked. And it's here with this background context that Moses gives an odd set of miscellaneous laws to his people. Go ahead and turn back to Deuteronomy. And you might be saying, okay, Hans, connect this for me. What does this have to do with this marriage and this odd law about a fight? What happens with one of the wives? Well, the second law in verses 11 to 12 is pretty easy to interpret. Now understanding this background context, that offspring are to inherit the land. And if the land is held, then you know you're in covenant connection with God. To lose the land means you lose the covenant. Okay? So it's a pretty big deal. So the underlying principle here in verses 11 through 12 is that the offspring of Israel need to be protected so that they might inherit the land and the covenant. And for that to take place, the Israelites were to not mess with one another's procreation. Here we have a simple situation where two men are fighting, a terrible thing to be sure, It does not reflect the heart of the God of Israel. But even in this difficult situation, it is not allowed for the wife of one of the men to draw near and act in a way that would surely incapacitate her husband's assailant. Any of us who have ever watched a YouTube series of videos that are comedic knows that the fastest way to get one guy out of the fight is to go after what Kung Fu Panda kindly calls the tenders, right? And so this is what happens. She goes in, she sees her husband's losing the fight, and so what does she do? She does what she knows is going to work. Well, the reality is, is this is not a great idea. This isn't a great idea because many commentators, even uh, many commentators agree that what's happening here is she's actually potentially cutting off the possibility of offspring. Now, some commentators believe that the severity of the punishment of getting her hand cut off is due to the impurity connected with the fact that a strange woman is touching the most intimate part of a man who is not her husband. But a still larger group of commentators agree with what I'm saying to you, that really what's going on here is that God has such a harsh punishment for her because she's possibly cutting off the offspring of that man's name, potentially leading to the loss of land in Israel and a loss of covenant connection. For Israel, the covenant with God was intimately linked with possession of the land. Therefore, one should not mess with the inheritance of another Israelite. Does this all make sense? So now you realize this isn't just some random moral rule about how you should fight when a fight breaks out. This is actually tied hugely to the covenant connection. And this gives us added context for the section before that speaks of a tradition popularly named um, Leveret marriage. Now, this was not a tradition known only to the Israelites. There are other historical markers that tell us this was practiced in some of the other people groups in the ancient Near East. It was, however, incredibly important to the Israelites, perhaps even more so than any of the other people groups. In essence, the practice was that when the oldest male marries, he was to carry on the name of the family and tribe, eventually carrying on the fullness of the inheritance that was given to the 12 tribes of Israel, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob's 12 sons. And so that it might stay within the possession of Israel, this was a very important thing. Offspring and covenant commitment was huge. And if that male heir were to die without having fathered children and thus future heirs, it was the job of the next eldest, and unmarried brother, to step in, marry the widowed wife, and produce an heir that would have all the rights of his deceased father. And this is what was known here as the duty of a husband's brother. In Latin, this term is translated leveret, L-E-V-I-R-A-T-E, or brother-in-law. It was the job of the brother-in-law. Now, we immediately, in our 2019 contemporary context, we think about it sexually. I've talked with people before about this passage, and we always try and interpret it in a sexual way. It's kind of like this. If you were going to start dating somebody, the first question you asked wasn't, you know, like, what is your favorite thing to do? It's, what's your sister look like, right? (laughs) I'm serious. I mean, that's how we think about it in our 2019 culture. We think, well, it has to do with sex. It doesn't have anything to do with sex, quite honestly. What it has to do with is it has to do with covenant commitment. It has to do with connection. If the woman uh, did not marry, she would be forced to sell the land of her husband to survive. So this kinsman stepping in would be doing a redemptive act. He'd be acting in complete compassion to care for her and for the lineage of the brother, redeeming the land so that it would not have to be sold and could stay within the family line. And this is why it says in verse 5, for example, if you look there, it can't be someone outside the family someone that's a stranger. Because it has to be in the family to continue the line so that the land stays in the tribal line. I know this is hard for us to grasp because it is so far outside our contemporary mindset, but to get what's going on here and to take you through why this is so important, we have to understand these pieces. Well, what was to happen if, for some reason, the brother was not willing to fulfill his obligation? Well, this is the practical nature of the law. You might remember how we just talked about recently how the Bible calls us to a higher standard, but in the Old Testament, it litigates the fact that we are really broken. And so sometimes we can't live up to that standard, but God is compassionate and gracious. And so he works with us in the state of sinfulness that we're in. And the woman here, if the, husband is, or if the brother-in-law isn't going to accept his duty, she's to go to the elders of the city. And these men are charged with being the upholders of the law. These men are the judges on legal affairs within any given town. They're the ones that kind of uh, care for and protect the town, watch out for it, serve the town. It's not too dissimilar from the idea of elders within a church. But more more so than the elders of a church, these men were truly the judges on legal matters. And they were to then speak with the brother-in-law and get him to realize his duty to selflessly give of himself to this widowed wife hey brother, you need to step in and be compassionate here. You're going to lose the land. Your uh, sister-in-law is going to become destitute. Do what needs to be done. But unfortunately, even though they'd call on him to be selfless, in some cases, in a very fleshly way, it was such a bad idea financially for the brother to take on a new wife and purchase or redeem the land with his own money that he was not um, he was not able to do it he just looked at it and he was like the rich young ruler in the gospels that said man this is just too heavy of a cost i'm not going to take my life savings and buy this piece of land in order to basically give it to someone else's lineage to give it to someone else i want it for me i want it for the production it will give me and so honestly in this fleshly sense he gets a loophole in order to step out of it he was not forced to do it by the law but only highly encouraged And so God, almost begrudgingly, adds in this loophole here, much like we discussed with the topic of divorce, to litigate the circumstances for the protection of the widow. And notice that there is no death penalty. There is simply a statement that this man was one who would not fulfill his selfless duty in building up his brother's house. He was known as that for the rest of his life. And what happens next here, in these odd steps that I kind of chuckle at because they're so different than what we would do in our day is a binding legal activity. It's as binding as, in our day, signing papers in a lawyer's office. It's as binding as signing over a deeded property to someone else in a courtroom setting. You see, the sandal of this day was the deed to a property. They would literally take their flip-flop off and hand it to someone else. Land, you see, was surveyed in a very particular way in that day. A person would walk in a triangular pattern, And they would mark off their land by the amount of land they could walk in an hour, in a day, in a week. And then stones or boundary markers were then placed to finalize the location. Remember, this was before even really ink and pen were used all that often. And so this is the way that you would mark off your land. To take off your sandal, the very thing you were walking in when you marked off your land, and to spit in their face was to say publicly, the land that you should have redeemed by propagating your brother's name is no longer yours. And you should be ashamed because of the selfish manner in which you were operating. That was the legal standing that was just applied. And so this name, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off, was a phrase that meant one who was not fulfilling his selfless, compassionate duty to the community. It was one who was not truly imaging the heart of God, and thus one who would not inherit the land. In essence, he was slightly being cut out of the covenant. On a practical level, this law also protected the woman, though, in a way that allowed her to be open to future marriage by a more distant relative of the brother that might yet still redeem her land and her name so that she might be saved from financial and societal ruin. And this, dear church, as with many other laws in Deuteronomy, shows the heart of our God toward the vulnerable in society. But perhaps even more important in this story is not just the understanding of the background. But it's the fact that I believe we can see within this law and practice, the selfless heart of God's people that is meant to reflect his own selfless character. You see, leveret marriage was a way to care for the community. It was to protect the community's covenant. It was to protect a person other than yourself, the sister-in-law and the lineage of your brother. It was indeed a selfless people reflecting a selfless God. We might move past this because it makes no sense to us, but this is core to understanding other pieces of the Bible, which I'm about to show you. So let me show you what I mean by contrasting how this law works out in two other biblical stories. And hopefully I'll be able to wake some of you back up after giving you all that historical info. But what I'm going to show you here is I'm going to show you in two contrasting stories the the contrast the Bible gives us using this idea of leveret marriage to show us selfishness or selflessness. And so the next thing we're going to see, you can write this down, is the purpose of leveret marriage is a picture of selfless redemption. Now you guys see where I'm going with this, right? The purpose of leveret marriage is a picture of selfless redemption. Now the first story is a grotesque one, and moms, if you have little ones in the room, you may want to get them earplugs because the Bible gets a little bit detailed. But we're going to go to Genesis 38, Go ahead and turn to Genesis 38, starting in verse 3. This is a story, as I've said before, that is often skipped over in church. It's one that you will never see in the felt books or in the comic book renditions of the Bible. And the reason is, is because it's one in which we will see the antithesis of the heart of Leverett marriage. It shows everything that is bad about humanity. Rather than acting in selflessness, the actors in this story of Leveret marriage act in sheer selfishness. There's one who is righteous, but it's actually a surprise character that you might not, in 2019 moral Christianity terms, declare as righteous. So to understand it, we have to understand the background we've just gathered. Interestingly, though, it actually takes place before Deuteronomy in Genesis 38. This is one of the many reasons we know that a sense of righteousness existed within the people of God, uh, that from Genesis 18, Abraham knew what was righteous and he was supposed to teach his offspring after him. And so leveret marriage existed before the formal law was put in place for the Israelites. So let's join up in Genesis 38 with a guy named Judah. Judah was one of the 12 tribes of Israel, a son of Jacob. And we're going to start there in verse 3. And rather than explaining the story first, I'm going to let the sheer weight of it hit you as I simply read through it. Let's look starting in verse 3. Or sorry, verse 6, it should be. Verse 6. Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. Now you see why it's not in any of the felt book, right? Felt books. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And he put him to death also. Now, if you don't know the background of liberate marriage, you can come up with all sorts of wacky reasons as to why Onan was put to death. I've heard a lot of them, and they're very odd, but I won't go into them today. Verse 11, Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shalah, my son, grows up, so his third son. For he feared that Shalah would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, she was daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, <clears throat> wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to name, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. So she knew something was up. She knew Judah wasn't going to do what he was supposed to do by giving Sheila to her. When Judah saw her, <clears throat> he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, "Come, let me come to you," for he did not uh, come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, "What will you give me that you may come into me?" And he answered, "I will send you a young goat from the flock." And she said, "If you give me a pledge until you send it." So uh, he's using credit, I guess here. <clears throat> Verse 18. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. These are identifiers of a man. Okay? So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. So what you just witnessed was solicitation of a prostitute. right? You just witnessed the crime. Okay, Verse 19, Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judas sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at a name at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. He knows he's in trouble. About three months later, Judah was told, Tomorrow, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. So she sent along the signet ring. She sent along the things that identified him and said, hey, looky here, big guy. Please identify who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. Er? In the first portion of the story, we're shown the idea of leveret marriage in action. Not for the purpose of specific inheritance, but more generally for the lineage of Judah to continue on through heir and for the protection of heir's widow, Tamar, in old age. We see quite pointedly the antithesis of God's heart in leveret marriage in the case of Onan. Onan wanted the sexual gratification that came with Tamar, but did not want the responsibility of raising up offspring that would not benefit his name. To put it bluntly, his heart was selfish. Now, how did God view this? How did it go for Onan? Anybody want to answer? Not well, to put it bluntly. But then, in the midst of this horrific, disgusting story, we see that God takes the horrifically sinful activity of mankind and makes something redemptive out of it. You might say, redemptive? Hans, how do we get that? Well, Tamar tricks Judah into impregnating her by pretending to be a cult prostitute, and then, when challenged on the topic, shows proof that it was Judah who had done so. You might say, well, wait a minute, how is this redemptive? Notice the crazy line in verse 26. Anybody catch that? She, Tamar, is more righteous than I. Wait, hold on a second. What? She lied. She lied. She dressed up like a prostitute. She fornicated with Judah, who is not her husband and is, in fact, her father-in-law. Does anybody want to clear up for me how this is righteous? This does not compute when you take a morality-driven view of Scripture. When you take a morality-driven view of Scripture, you say she should be kicked out of the church, man. She should be gone. How dare she? But see, the reality is is this is not driven the way American moralism is driven. Tamar was doing this for a very specific reason. She was more righteous because she was doing everything in her power to propagate her husband's name. Without knowing it, she was doing what God would later require of his people. She was continuing the lineage of her husband's name, and ultimately she was serving Judah so that his offspring and his possession of the covenant promise could continue. Now you might say, what? How? wait a minute, how do we even know that, Hans? Are you reading that into the scripture? Well, notice that she did not go after someone outside the lineage. She just wanted to get pregnant. She could have gotten pregnant by anyone. She could have dressed up as a cult prostitute and gotten anyone to impregnate her. She could have gone off and married someone else, but she was staying true to her promise and under the submission of her father and her father-in-law to stay without marrying. And so this was the way that she figured she could step in to continue the lineage of Judah. Now, don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying this is a good idea. I'm not saying this is how we should act as Christians. But in fact, what Tamar was doing was continuing the lineage and doing Judah a favor by continuing his name. And from this broken union come Tamar and Judah's offspring. Let's see who they are, verse 27 there. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she, saw, uh, when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back in his hand, behold, his brother came out and said, she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez, which means breach. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Now, later on in Scripture, we see that this lineage continues, and it's actually picked up later in another story. We see the great, 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 great grandchild of Perez, and his name, does anybody know it? It was Boaz, in the story of Ruth. And our background knowledge of levirate marriage helps us see it with new eyes. Turn with me to the book of Ruth. Go ahead and go to the right, past Deuteronomy. If you hit 1 Samuel, you've gone too far. We finished last week's teaching in this same book, in this same story. An Israelite woman named Naomi and her husband Elimelech. Everybody say Elimelech. It's a fun name to say, Elimelech. If I had another kid, I think we'd probably name it Elimelech. I haven't talked to Kelly about that, but... So Naomi and Elimelech left Israel with their two sons because a famine was in the land and they went to neighboring Moab. And we learn from the section we're going to read today that he did not actually sell his land. He left it and just went away for a time. He kept it in his possession, hoping to come back soon when the famine was over. But shortly thereafter in Moab, the two sons and Elimelech all died. And so these three women are left alone as widows, Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, Orpah, and I always want to say Oprah there, Orpah and Ruth. Now, Naomi believes all hope is lost, and so she heads back to Israel to sell the land of her husband's forefathers so that she might survive. They go back with nothing, but they know that this land is there, and if she can sell it, then she might be able to survive and provide for herself. And the two young women begin heading back to Israel with Naomi as she returns to settle business. Look at what it says in Ruth 1-11, through and our understanding of leveret marriage gives us a new view of this. In 1.11, the the daughters try to go back with her and they say, no, we will return with you to your people. Verse 11, but Naomi said, turn back my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back my daughters, go your way for I am too old to have a husband. Now, why would she even say something like that? Well, because of leveret marriage, okay? I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night, If I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. In other words, even if I had a baby today and you waited until they were, you know, 16, 18, whatever the the childbearing years might be, they would be too old to bear children and the inheritance would be lost anyway. So there's no hope, she says. We got to go back and sell this land. There's no hope. And so Naomi says, ladies, because there's no hope, I'm going to go. Well, Ruth, as we saw last week, she says, no, I'm going to go with you. Orpah leaves and stays in Moab, but Ruth goes back. And the story then progresses as we find that in this town, the town of Bethlehem, to which they have returned is a man named Boaz. And he is a wealthy landowner. We know he's the great, 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 great grandchild of Perez. But we also know that he's a relative of Elimelech. And Ruth goes and begins gleaning for food in his fields, and Boaz shows her kindness. She's, in essence, begging. And after realizing that he fancies her, Naomi and Ruth devise a plan for Ruth to, in essence, propose to Boaz. Interesting. She goes and she basically does a similar thing to Tamar. And if I had the time to explain it to you, The idiom that is used in Ruth means she's very forward even for today's standards. She goes and she says to Boaz, Boaz, I need you to take care of me, to be my kinsman redeemer, to be the one that covers Leveret marriage. But this is all innate to knowing the Torah and knowing Leveret marriage. So she goes to the threshing floor at the end of the harvest and proposes that Boaz be her protector and her Redeemer. Look there at chapter 3, verse 9. He's asleep after he's eaten and drunk and full and, and uh, drunk of good wine and full. Probably not drunk in terms of today, but just laying there, tired, and he's done his, uh, his work of harvesting and laboring. And she comes to him in his sleep, and she lays at his feet. And he wakes up, and he says, "'Who are you?' And she answered, "'I am Ruth, your servant. "'Spread your wings over your servant.'" for you are a redeemer. She comes to him. And there's so much more to the story here. I can't wait until we teach Ruth because there's so much packed into this. But what we quickly see is that she calls him a redeemer. This was a title for one who could serve as the relative that redeems the land that was lost from inheritance. Because Boaz was not a brother of Elimelech or his two two sons, he does not technically need to be the one to practice the law of leveret marriage to bring up offspring. But because he is a relative, he can fulfill the role of the redeemer, the one who redeems the land from debt so that it might stay in the inheritance of its original owner. But before Boaz can act, we are told that there is one who could also redeem Ruth, one who is closer in lineage, technically, to Ruth and to Elimelech. And so Boaz must first meet with this man to see if he wants to do the job of redemption. So let's join the story now in chapter 4, starting in verse 1, and see how Boaz carries out this role of redeemer. And in this portion of the story, we will see the selflessness of this law of leveret marriage in action in complete contrast to the story we just read in Genesis 38. Take a look at Ruth chapter 4, verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. They turned aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. What's he doing? He's conducting court. He's getting the court set up. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. See that? That's how we know that that's what she was coming back to do. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And so the man said, I will redeem it. Now pause here for a moment. Before we get too far, let's recall all that we know thus far. Boaz has gone to the city gates to the elders and has assembled them for the purpose of conducting legal business He wants to make sure that the action that is about to be undertaken is cemented in stone legally Boaz also calls to the metaphorical court this one to whom he says turn aside here friend sit down the other possible redeemer Now we might pause and wonder why would the author not write down the name of the one that is called? He's given us tons of other names. Why is this person removed? Surely Boaz knew the name of the man, being a relative of his. And guys, in those days, towns were not that large. Even the largest cities, you knew pretty much everyone in the city. But he doesn't call him. The author doesn't call him by this name. Instead, in the original Hebrew, there is an idiom that is used here, and you can go look it up in the Hebrew. It is the phrase, poloni almoni. Everybody say, Poloni poloni almoni. Poloni almoni. It's a Hebrew phrase. It's a phrase that lacks an equitable translation in English. That's why uh, you see different things in various translations, the predominant one being friend. But it's not a word that is really friend. It's actually a terrible translation. The closest thing in our English language is that so-and-so. You know, like that dirty so-and-so. It is a phrase that is used purposefully by the author to note, that the, man's pre- to note the man's presence but to remove any ability to recognize his importance. In fact, one might consider that the phrase is put there to speak to the reader a sense of degradation towards the man. And we will see why in a moment. The author is saying, this guy's a jerk. And you see at this point, this Poloni Elmoni, this so-and-so, he's going to redeem the land. <clears throat> we can only intimate from the text what is happening here, but it's an educated guess based on what's about to happen. This man sees that a large parcel of land is available for purchase. With no rightful heirs and being of old age and past childbearing years, this is perfect because Naomi is not able to marry the man. And so he can simply purchase the land, wait for her to pass on, and then the land will be his. In essence, he's being a gold digger. It's an amazing deal. Not only will he get the land, but he will also get the reputation of a benevolent and caring man, having redeemed the land of this old woman. But as we read on, we see that his motivation is not selfless, not giving of everything, but instead selfish. How do we see that? Well, pick up in verse 5. Boaz has just hooked him to show what kind of a man he truly is. I'll redeem it. Sounds great. Let's do it. Then Boaz says, verse 5, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. All of a sudden, the Redeemer's tone changes. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. You see, dear brothers and sisters, this poloni almoni, this dirty so-and-so, was not interested in fulfilling the point of the Redeemer, nor of the Leveret. His motivation was merely selfish. And we have seen over and over and over again in Deuteronomy that the economic good of the community outweighed the economic good of the individual. It is not a weird form of communism. It is simply generosity that the people of God were called to. And Boaz just presented to him the fact that Ruth came as part of the deal. And so what would actually happen is this man would need to use his own inheritance to purchase the land, and he would then need to marry and impregnate Ruth so that her offspring might gain the land for the name of Elimelech. In other words, this Poloni Almoni would be called to give everything so that the name of Elimelech might be perpetuated. He would have to give up his own name. In essence, his name would need to die, and his inheritance would need to be given up so that another man's name might be resurrected from the dead. And what is his response? I cannot. It would cost too much. Now, the author stops short of giving him the name of the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. But instead, he simply leaves this man unnamed with the filler title of that dirty so-and-so, Poloni Almoni one unworthy to be remembered. But then there is Boaz. Let's see what the author says of Boaz. Take a look at verse 7. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal. You guys never knew your flip-flops were so popular, huh? Powerful. And gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. And then they break out in praise and in thanksgiving and in prayer. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house. May the Lord make Ruth, like Rachel and Leah. Who are they? They are the mothers of the 12 tribes of Israel. He's saying, may the Lord continue to propagate your offspring. May the Lord bless you. And if they stopped there, we'd think that's an awesome prayer. But notice how they go on. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. What on earth does Perez have to offer? I would submit to you that it's interesting that the author would call the reader's mind back to the story of Perez, Judah, and Tamar. Why would they do that? Why would they put this hyperlink here as a reference to speak of the selflessness of Boaz, well, this is how biblical narrative goes. It calls to mind the reader. It calls to the reader's mind the story of Perez and the selfish acts of Judah and of Onan and the fact that Tamar was simply trying to do the very same thing Ruth was, to continue the lineage of the people to whom she was submitted. I would submit to you that it is as a direct contrast of the selfishness of Onan, the selfishness of Judah, that the author here shows the selflessness of Boaz. And you see, the author wants us to grasp that Boaz was more a man following in the image of God of Israel than even his forefather Judah. Boaz was one who, from this story we know, had everything. He was a righteous man. It pours forth from every inch of this story. He didn't need anything. He was wealthy, more wealthy than many of us could imagine. Life was good. And yet, Boaz was one who was willing, regardless of personal cost, to give everything so that someone else's house could be built up, someone else's name could be proclaimed. And the name that was proclaimed was that of Elimelech, a name in Hebrew which means my God is king. And even beyond that, he took on the role, a role not required of him, to be the Leveret Redeemer of Ruth and her offspring. Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, and the fulfillment of the Leveret promise. He was the lover that gave everything for his beloved. And he did it all so that the name of Elimelech might not be cut off from his people, cut off from his land, cut off from the covenant with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Boaz was a model and a picture that pointed to the perfect redeemer, He was a selfless man reflecting a selfless God. And it is from his offspring, the offspring of the man named my God is King, that the perfect selfless Redeemer would one day come. Take a look at verse 13 there in Ruth chapter 4. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And King David, as we come to know, is the forefather of a man named Jesus the Christ. You see, the last point I have for you today is this. The story of Scripture always leads us to the perfect selfless Redeemer. The story of Scripture always leads us to the perfect selfless Redeemer, Jesus Christ. If you look through the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1, you will find the names of Tamar, of Perez, of Boaz, of Ruth, of David. Boaz is given to us in the narrative of Scripture to point us to the perfect kinsman-redeemer, the one who would give everything so that others might receive their inheritance and so that others might stay in covenant relationship with God. He is the perfect redeemer. He is the perfect fulfiller of the leveret promise. Just as Boaz gave everything so that he might redeem Ruth, Jesus Christ Gave everything so that he might redeem you and I. So that he might redeem his beloved. We read earlier, Esther read to us in Philippians chapter 2, of who this kinsman redeemer, of who this perfect redeemer is. Paul, in speaking to the church at Philippi, says this, "...do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves." He had royalty of heaven. He had the position of equality with God the Father as part of the Trinity. But he emptied everything and took on the form of a servant, a selfless servant. He was born in the likeness of man and humbled himself even to the point of death on the cross of Calvary. He gave everything on that cross so that you and I might live, so that our names might continue as they're written in the book of life. He gave everything everything so that we might live and our names might live on even though we die. Three days after his death, Jesus rose from the grave and poured out his spirit on us so that we might be called the adopted offspring of God, sons and daughters that can rightly proclaim our God is king and know and have been promised and guaranteed that an inheritance of eternal redemption and reconciliation awaits. The selfless nature of leveret marriage. This odd section in Deuteronomy, which quite honestly, I didn't really want to teach. But even in those places in Scripture that we wince at and we wonder, why is this here? They point us to the selfless God who has given everything that we might be one with Him. If you are one who has not yet entered into relationship with this selfless God through the work of Jesus Christ by His Holy Spirit, if you haven't done that, today is the day of your salvation. I want to call you to recognize what God has done for you. He has given everything so that you might be one with him. God so loved you and God so loved the world that he gave everything in his son so that you could live eternally with him in covenant union so that you might know his love. If you don't know the love of Jesus today, I would absolutely love to talk to you during the second worship set. Come back and talk with me about what it is to be a Christian. Maybe you're not even totally there yet. You just have questions. I would love to talk with you, and I think Patrick will be back there as well. We would love to discuss what it is to follow Jesus. Today is the day for you to give your life to him. For those of us who know this and have accepted this truth already, today is a good reminder of it for sure. We need to realize that God's call to his people is to remember his selflessness, but then to be a selfless people that reflect his selfless heart. You see, this call still exists for us today. It didn't stop with Boaz. It didn't stop with the Israelites. It continues on into the New Testament. This is why Paul says to Timothy at one point in one of his letters, he says, the man who cannot care for his offspring, for his family, he's worse than an unbeliever. We take that as a moral law that says uh, dads have to earn money for their family. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about caring for the community. Do you care? Are you selfless? The man who is not selfless enough to provide for those around him, especially his own family, he can't call himself a Christian. He's worse than a non-believer, in essence, outside the covenant. We are to be Christ followers in the way we lay down our lives for one another. We do it in the simple ways we support one another and care for each other. Our church is big enough now that I'm not involved in all the things that go on, and so it's so amazing When I come into the office and I find out that someone's in need and I instantly try and connect with people and say, hey, who's watching out for this person? And instantly I know that three people are already doing it. Someone else has already gone and delivered a meal. Someone else has already started up a meal train. Someone else has delivered diapers to a new baby. Someone else is caring for the sick and the afflicted and the poor. When I hear about the stories of how you're engaging the kingdom, I see the selflessness of God reflected. I see it in things as simple as many of you in the midst of our children's wing. I know that a lot of you don't take uh, advantage of our childcare on congregational meetings, but yet you still go in and serve. You don't view it as a tit-for-tat situation where, well, I don't make use of it, so I can't serve. You rightly serve. I see many of you doing it on a Sunday. Some of you don't have kids. Some of you, you don't really like kids. Well, that's Okay. And yet you serve anyway, and you love those kids with everything in you. I see the selflessness in this church in amazing ways. I see many of you giving everything in those times so that you might help the smallest among us know Christ. I see you giving everything to care for the community and to welcome in strangers so that you might give everything in that moment to show them who our selfless God is. We do it even in the simple ways we give of our finances to our brothers and sisters in Burkina so that they might proclaim the gospel so that others might live. Do you guys realize that the gospel is now preached in at least five villages that prior to the movement of a church into that area that we helped roof and we helped support that pastor, prior to that they knew nothing of Jesus Christ. But by the simple generosity of you giving money to roofs and to pastoral training, we have assisted in the work that God is doing in moving the gospel throughout Burkina Faso. We do it in the ways we see, serve each other in our day to day lives. Brothers and sisters, have you found that your heart is getting weary of giving everything? Have you found that your heart is weary of serving? We ask a lot of you guys to serve. And you are wondering, probably, when your recognition or reward is coming. But, dear brothers and sisters, That feeling comes upon all of us. And that's okay. We can recognize that and know that. But today is the day for us to refocus. To refocus our eyes on why we selflessly serve. It's not to gain something in this life. It's because God has demonstrated his selfless love for us and has given us eternal life. And so we now step forward knowing that calling ourselves Christians is costly. And we serve selflessly so that others might know and see the love of Jesus Christ. Amen? As we go into communion today, let's take all of this knowledge we've learned that we could just toss out of our brains as soon as we go out this door. Or we could take it and go to the communion tables and recommit ourselves to being that selfless people that reflect a selfless God, that show who Jesus Christ is. That show that he is the one that gave everything so that the world might know his name and if we do that then the words will come easily when someone asks us what is the reason for the hope behind us what is reason for the selflessness behind us and we can say my god is king i serve the one who selflessly gave his life for me and so i've been giving my life for you